Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Uh, From Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. If you've been with us, you know that we're in a series on prayer. We're beginning the year with this series talking about prayer. Um, Following this series, we'll be moving into a series on generosity and giving. Um, These all fit within a larger context of talking about the practices of spiritual formation, the practices that help us become more like Jesus. Uh, And so we talked about engaging with Scripture in the fall, prayer now, generosity and giving. We'll be talking about Sabbath and then gathering together as we move through this year. Uh, So today, though, we are in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like or with the pew Bible in front of you. Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Anybody have a hard time praying? I mean, we've been talking about this for weeks now. You should be professionals, okay? Like, right? If you're not great at prayer, you, hadn't just, you just hadn't been doing it yet. No. It doesn't matter how long we're in the church. It doesn't matter how long we're following Jesus. Prayer can be really difficult. And here's, here's the encouraging thing I want you to know from, from the text. Sometimes we come to the Bible, especially the Gospels, where Jesus is leading his disciples, and we think that these people have it all together. We think that because they walked with Jesus and they knew him personally and they had a physical presence to talk to and to walk with, that they must have gotten it right, right? They they must have had a leg up on us. But that just couldn't be further from the truth. If you read the Gospels and you read the way that Jesus' disciples interact with him and the stories that he tells them, what you learn is that these people struggled with the exact same things that you and I do. Read the epistles, the letters of Paul later, after, after the ministry of Jesus and after the early missionary journeys in Acts, when Paul's writing these letters to these churches, we find that, I mean, these are really crazy dysfunctional places, and we find teaching on things over and over and over and over again. And when, when we see the same kind of teaching in the Bible over and over again, you know what that signals to us? That these people struggled with it too. If they didn't struggle with it, they wouldn't need constant reminding of it. And so, when we read the parables of Jesus, we have to understand that the people Jesus is talking to, they're just like you and me. Just like us in our own spiritual struggles and spiritual lives. They need the same kind of encouragement and instruction that we need, and we need the same kind that they need. That's why it's there. And so you, you can't come to the Bible assuming everybody in it is some supernatural superhero. Like there's some faith-filled superhero who has it all together and knows what they're doing and, and have it all right. And that's a big encouragement to us because these are the people who will found the church. Right? These are the founding fathers and mothers 
of the Christian church that Jesus is talking to. And they're clueless, just like you and me. All too often, right, they need the same kind of teaching and encouragement. So when we read the parables of Jesus as he's teaching the people, just know that he's teaching people just like you and me with the same struggles. And so we come to this parable of Jesus about prayer. And this is, this is, one, of the, this is one of the gifts of Luke's gospel right here. There are not many parables of Jesus that come with an explanation or a precursor to set you up. And yet we have right here verse 1, which is just beautiful. Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There's the point of the parable. Let's close it up and go home. Right? It's that easy, right? Jesus told them a parable about how they should always pray and never give up. That's what this parable is about. But lest we read it through our, our modern-day lens, lest we read it through our lens, but we need to understand some things that are going on here. So let's, let's look at the characters that Jesus sets up. He starts with this, there's this judge, and he doesn't fear God or respect people. That's not the kind of judge you want, right? Anybody want a judge who doesn't fear God or respect people? Like, th this guy is maybe dedicated to the letter of the law, and that's all. And so this guy, he's, not, he's an unsympathetic character. The, Jesus is setting you up to know that no matter who comes before this judge, they're not going to find sympathy. They're not going to find somebody who's ready and willing to give them what they ask for. Right? This guy is stern. He doesn't fear God. He's got no respect for people. He's not going to give anybody preferential treatment. And so Jesus wants you to understand who exactly you're dealing with here. This is the least sympathetic judge. And then he introduces the second character, this widow. Now, why a widow? A widow because they have no power. They have no influence. Widows are near the bottom rung of society. And there are a lot of them in this world because women married very young to men who tended to be a little bit older and so women would be widow, could be widowed fairly young in this society, and there end up being a lot of widows. And they have no real power in society. And so Jesus says, this widow comes. And so if you're, if you're someone who's listening to him, then you're like, okay, I have an unsympathetic judge who doesn't fear God or care about people, and then I have the least powerful person who could come to him. You, you know what's going to happen, right? The judge is just not going to listen. There's no way this woman is going to get what she wants from the judge. There's no way this woman gets justice from this judge who doesn't fear God or care about people. There, there could be, so sometimes we, we, we portray this time and place as though all judges were this way. But that's not true. There are people who are listening to this can imagine a scenario where there's, there's a sympathetic judge. There's a judge who knows the law and loves the law, and yet, like God has called them to, loves the widows and orphans, loves the outcast, would want to help them. So Jesus has to make it clear, this is not one of those judges who respects the law. This is why he says this judge does not fear God. The law of God says to care for the least of society to care for the widows and orphans, to listen to their pleas and to give them justice. That's what the law requires. So a judge who was actually faithful to the law and who feared God would listen to this widow and give her justice. 
It's not as though they lived in some barbaric time where people just didn't have real hearts and care about each other. Sometimes that's the way we portray this world in which Jesus lived. And that's just not true. The hearts of people have not changed from the very beginning. Our technology has changed. Our cultures have changed. Our access to things has changed. Our knowledge of the world may have changed. But the hearts of people have never been any different. Been the same from the beginning. And so this is not a time and place where everything's just barbaric and harsh and and the world is hard and cold and cruel to everybody. There are good judges out there who respect the law of God and would give this widow justice as the law required. This is not one of them. And he doesn't respect people either. He doesn't really care what people are going to think of him. So if the people around in the community are like, yo, did you hear what that judge did to that widow? Like, he didn't even listen to her. The judge isn't going to care. He doesn't care about his reputation in the community. He doesn't care what people have to say. He doesn't respect people. This judge is going to do what this judge is going to do, period, regardless of the consequences, either according to the law or the social consequences. That's why he doesn't fear God or respect people and why it's important that we know that. So here comes this widow. She's got a conflict of some sort, as many widows would. And she comes before this judge seeking justice. We don't know what about. It doesn't really matter. And she's coming before this judge, and she's like, here's my case. Here's my plea. And the heart of this judge is completely unmoved. I don't care. That's, nope, not giving you that. And so that's where we find ourselves. Okay. So that's where we find ourselves. The, the, just, the widow is not going to get justice from this judge. The judge just is not going to operate according to the rule of law, of God's law, or according to the standards of society. He's going to do what he's going to do. Only the widow keeps coming back and back and back. She will not leave this judge alone. And so finally the judge says, my gosh, okay, just whatever. Whatever it is, yes, just Give her what she's asking for. Yeah, I'll I'll rule in your favor. Just leave me alone. Because she pesters him over and over, seeking justice. And this is a good thing. Now, this parable is what we'd call a how much more parable. This is a common construction Jesus uses in his stories. How much more? If this judge, who doesn't fear God, who doesn't care about people, doesn't res- is not a respecter of persons, if this judge will give the widow justice after being worn down, how much more will God give his children what they ask for? How much more will God bring justice to his children? And this is where we have to play with our application of this parable. Because if you just go kind of on the surface level and and you don't think deeply about it, you'll think that what Jesus is saying here is that if you want something from God, you just need to pester him. Just keep coming. If you annoy God enough, you'll get what you want. And that that is the most shallow possible reading of this parable. And yet, it's where many of us arrive if we don't sit and think about it, if we don't immerse ourselves in the world in which it was said and shared. The real point of this parable is not if you pester God, you'll get what you want. You're not the point of the parable at all. God is the point of the parable. 
God is the main character here. And the point is that God is not like this judge. When we come with the application that, well, this is just saying if you continually come before God with your request, eventually he'll grant it to you, we're making God out to be like the unjust judge. We're making God out to be a stingy father who just withholds from his kids until they bug him enough that they'll give him what they want. And that's not the character of our God. The point of the parable is that's not what God is like. God is exactly the opposite of this judge. God hears his children. God longs to give, longs to bring justice for his kids. God loves his children. And when we come to our God, our God listens. Our God hears us. Our God longs to hear from us. So the lesson is not, look, if you want something badly enough, just keep pestering God and eventually it'll be yours. The point of this parable is God hears you. God listens to you. And when you come to pray to your God seeking good things, you have a sympathetic father in heaven. You have someone who loves to hear from his children who wants to know you and wants to hear from you and wants to hear what you need. We have a God who delights in filling the needs of his people and bringing justice for them where it is lacking. That's the point of this parable. Not the surface level reading. But we compare God to the unjust judge and we find that our God is so much better than that judge could ever be. In fact, our God is so much better than any of us could ever be. That's the point of this parable. But Jesus goes on and he says something puzzling at the end, and this kind of upturns everything. Verse 8b. When you, when you read, like, when you're looking at your Bible references and there's like a B or an A, just know those letters are totally arbitrary. Someone has broken the verse up somewhere, and they're saying... Part A is some number of words, and part B is some number of words. There's no, like, there's no, like, calculation behind this, okay? So when I say 8B, what I mean is the second sentence of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What on earth does that mean in this parable? We really could have stopped with the previous sentence and been good, right? Keep praying because God loves you. Keep talking to him because God loves you. But Jesus has to go and do his Jesus thing and add some enigmatic phrase to this parable just in case it wasn't confusing enough, folks. Jesus was like, oh, I was too clear on that one. I got to throw something in there, right? Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus has just said, when God's children cry out for justice... He will give it to them. When God's people call out for shalom, for wholeness, for healing, for goodness, God will give it to them. But then this last question really throws the whole context into into light. What Jesus is asking here is, will the people of God come and seek justice? Are they really looking for me? 
Are they really looking for what God has to give? Are the people, the children of God, actually seeking God's justice? Are they actually seeking things from God's hand? Are they seeking the good gifts that their father has to give? Jesus is the son of man in this question. He is the one who has come to bring God's justice and to bring it swiftly. He is the one who has come to bring vindication for God's people. He's the one who's come, and yet he's being rejected at every turn. The leaders of the nation are rejecting his teaching. He's being investigated by the religious leaders of the day. He's going to go to a Roman cross and be crucified. Jesus is not finding the faith that he needs. He's not finding the faith in God's people that he so desires. And so Jesus now has said, look, when God's people cry out for justice, God will grant it. But I'm not hearing their cries. The leadership is rejecting his teaching. They're not placing faith in Jesus and in his teaching. And so Jesus is looking at his followers and he's asking them, do you have faith? Do you have faith in the Son of Man? Will you cry out to me for God's justice? Will you cry out to me for God's goodness? Will you pray? Will you be the one who steps in and prays and seeks God's face and seeks God's justice? Will you be the one who continually comes before the throne of God? Will you be the one who, like the widow, comes and seeks justice from the hand of God? Will you be the one who prays? Will you be the one who puts your faith in the Son of Man? Will you be the one who seeks justice for your neighbors and for your community and for your nation? Will you be the one? Will you pray? Because the, the evidence of God's goodness, the evidence that God is a good father who longs to give and provide for his children is standing right in front of these disciples. The proof that their good God is seeking their justice and bringing their justice to earth is standing in front of them telling them this parable now. He is the object of their faith. And to us who live so long after, who are looking at the Son of Man speaking this parable, sharing this parable about coming before the throne of God consistently because we know of the goodness of God, the question for us remains... Will Jesus find in us hearts of faith? Will God find in us a people of faith? Because faith prays. Faith seeks God's face. And prayer builds faith. It's this beautiful cycle. It's this beautiful grand cycle. Faith prays. It seeks God's face. It seeks God's hand. Faith knows the loving Father who longs to give His children good things. And prayer strengthens faith. If you haven't been feeling your faith, if you haven't been feeling your connection to God, if you haven't felt connected to this faith that you proclaim, ask yourself first, have I failed to pray? Have I sought God's face? Have I gone to my good Father? 
Have I sought his hand? Have I sought his justice? Have I sought his shalom? If I'm not seeing faith in myself, if I'm not feeling faith, if I'm not feeling the connection to God that I long for, maybe it's because I'm not praying. Faith prays, and prayer builds faith. It's how God made us. And this is not some crazy mystery. It's how we build every single relationship in our lives. Every relationship you've ever had has been built on communication, on sharing life together, on talking with one another and being together. And prayer is nothing more than our intimate communication with God. Every relationship is built on the foundation of communication. And our relationship with God is absolutely no different. And so we are built to pray. We are crafted to pray. We are made to pray. We are made for intimacy with our God. You go back and you read in the very first chapters of Genesis, the very first people, what did they do? They walked with God in the garden. They communicated with God in the garden. Intimacy with God and one another is the sole reason we were created in the first place. And if we fail to pray, we shortcut our intimacy with God. We cut it off. In the same way that if we fail to talk with one another and spend time together, we undercut our relationships. And as I said before, the proof of the goodness of God, the proof that God wants that intimate communication with us more than anything, is right here in the person of Jesus. Right here in the Son of Man who came to represent God to us and to draw us into God's orbit, to draw us into intimate relationship with God. The proof of God's goodness is that when we were saying to God, nope, I'm not interested. Nope, I'm in rebellion against you. No, I will run my own life. I have no interest in you. When we were walking away in active enemies of God, he sent Jesus to us. The Son of Man has come to us. Jesus Christ has come to us when we are God's enemies in order to make us his children. Not just his friends, not just his acquaintances, not just those who are kind of on the periphery, not those who are like standing way out on the edge of the crowd. Jesus has come to us when we were God's enemies to draw us in as brothers and sisters to Jesus, children of our Father in heaven, who longs to give us the justice that we seek and the goodness that we long for. And the justice that our hearts are most crying out for, the justice that we seek more than anything else, is freedom from our sin and unity with our God in heaven, our Father above us. And that's what Jesus came to give. A justice that does not penalize you and me for our sin and our rebellion against God, but a justice that saw Jesus go to a cross and be hung and crucified in order to deal with our rebellion once and for all so that we can be full-fledged members of God's family. This is why Jesus has come. This is the proof of God's goodness, that Jesus took our rebellion on a cross and was crucified for it. But then on the third day, rose again in victory 
over everything that stands opposed to you and me. Everything that would, that would bring injustice into our lives. Everything that would cause us to fall away from God. Everything that stands opposed to our intimacy with God was crucified on the cross and Jesus rose again in victory over all of our enemies forever on the third day. This is the God who pursues. This is the God who comes after us when we don't want him, when we're not looking for him. This is the goodness of our God on display, and this is the swift justice that the Son of Man came to bring. Not justice with a sword against God's enemies, but justice that took nails in his body to save his enemies. This is the proof of the goodness of our God. This is the God who we come to and we long for intimacy with. This is the God to whom we pray continuously. And this is the foundation of our prayer. Not that we are always seeking from God's hand. Not that we're pestering God to get the thing that we want. Not that we have to come and cajole God into giving us the good things. We come in prayer always to our God because of what he has done for us in Jesus Christ and who he has become for us through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. We come in prayer continually before our God because He is our good Father who loves us and adopted us when we wanted nothing to do with Him. That is why we pray. And so if you've been struggling in prayer, if you've been struggling in your motivation to pray, maybe it's because you've approached prayer legalistically. Like it's this thing I'm supposed to do in order to stay in good standing with God. Or maybe you've been approaching prayer opportunistically. Like, it's the thing that I do because I want something from God and he'll only give it to me if I pray for it. Or maybe you've been approaching prayer as a bargain. This is where so many of us start, right? We start our prayers by saying, God, if you'll just, then I will. And we bargain with God over and over. If we're lacking intimacy with God in our prayer and we're struggling in our prayer life, maybe it's because we haven't been approaching prayer as an intimate communion with our good Father. Maybe we've been approaching it legalistically or opportunistically or as a bargain or some other way. But the foundation of our prayer lives, the the thing that keeps us coming back so that we keep it up is knowing exactly who our God is and who we are in his eyes. And longing to be with him. One quick story before we're done. I was, uh, I was in coastal Georgia. Last week I was out of town. Thank you, Reed, for sharing with us from the scripture. Um, I, was, uh, I was, and I had, I had some free time. So I was in this place called St. Simon's Island, which is this beautiful coastal island um, right out on the edge of, of Georgia. And there, there's this old church. Um, and it's a beautiful church. People go to tour the church all the time and tour the grounds, and the cemetery is gorgeous, and it's just in this beautiful, idyllic setting. But across the street from the church, what I imagine is a, is a less traveled, less touristy place, they have a prayer labyrinth. I don't know if you've ever been to a prayer labyrinth. It's not a huge hedged maze. You don't get lost in it. It's a path. A prayer labyrinth is simply a path that winds in upon itself over and over and over again until you end up in the center. And the idea is that you walk this path and you pray, and it helps you to center on God. I don't have to think about where I'm going or what I'm doing. I'm able to to empty my mind of the concerns of life and just focus on this path in front of me 
while I commune with God, while I pray with God. And I, instead of going and touring the church, I saw the, I saw the labyrinth sign and I felt like God was, was calling me. And so I walked across the street and I went to the prayer labyrinth and I just walked the labyrinth for 45 minutes or so, just praying, lost in the labyrinth, lost in the pattern in front of me and just praying and seeking God's face. And, and when I got to the center of the, of the labyrinth, I, was, I had been praying, uh, repenting of some things in my life, and I had been seeking God's face for this church and for some, for some other things. Um, and, and I was really getting into that legalistic mode where I was like, I need this stuff from God, and I need to pray because I, I need to do this because I'm teaching on prayer, and I'm a hypocrite if I don't do this. And, and I get to the center of the labyrinth, and I hear, I don't, I'm not one who hears the audible voice of God often. I'm not one who, 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 who gets, I don't, I don't do the, the weird stuff too much, right? But I get to the center of the prayer labyrinth. And I hear God say, my grace is sufficient for you. And the walk out, that's all. That's all I prayed for the rest of the walk out. On the way into the labyrinth, I had been focused on me and my need. On, on the way into the labyrinth, I was, I was so focused on myself. And I got to the center. And it was the loving word of my Father that said, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for your sin. My grace is sufficient for your job. My grace is sufficient for your family. My grace is sufficient for you as a father and as a son and as a brother and as a pastor. My grace is sufficient for you. And I held on to that. I owned it on my way out of that labyrinth. And the rest of the weekend, that was my prayer. God, your grace is sufficient for me. And in that moment, I knew an intimacy with my father that I have not known in many, many years. His grace is sufficient for us. And your father now is speaking that over you as he's calling us to pray continually, to constantly be in communion with him. He wants you to know that you can come to him consistently and constantly, not because he's holding you over the pit of hell ready to drop you in, not because he's ready to condemn you, not because he wants to cast you out, not because he's waiting for you to clean your life up. He wants you to know that he wants you to come to him all the time because his grace is sufficient for you in all things and at all times. God's grace is sufficient because He is your Father, because He has come to us as Jesus Christ to carry our sin away, and because He has sent us His Holy Spirit to live in us and make us like Jesus. And so I invite you, I invite you to carry that prayer with you Father, your grace is sufficient for me. Let that be your prayer now. Father, your grace is sufficient for us in all things and in all of our capacities and in all of our roles and in everything that we do, your grace is sufficient. You are not an unjust judge. You are not a stingy grandfather. God, you are not some, you are not some law enforcement ready to put us away. You are the Father in heaven who sent Jesus to us when we were running the other way. And your grace 
is sufficient for us. Let us today as your people hold that truth. Let that be the prayer of our hearts that move us to constantly come before you with every small detail of our lives and commune with our good Father in heaven because your grace is sufficient for us. Let us lay aside our sin. Let us lay aside our rebellion. Let us lay aside our ambition and our, our need and our longing to rule our own lives because your grace is sufficient for us. Let us lay aside any shame and condemnation because your grace is sufficient for us. Let us lay aside everything in our lives that would be a barrier to you because Jesus has crucified it and risen in victory over it because your grace is sufficient for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.